I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to EE Times On Air. And this is your weekly briefing for the week ending February 5th. AI is beginning to pervade a boggling array of electronic products. The discipline is still relatively new, and the technology is still evolving. That makes it hard for engineers to figure out how to evaluate what they need. We'll have a discussion with Jeff Tate, the co-founder and CEO of AI specialist Flex Logics Technologies, on how to choose the AI technology that's right for your application. Also, we discuss one of the big trends in the electronics industry, the development of open source technologies. What do we mean by open source technology, and why is it becoming such a big deal now? A discussion with industry analyst Kevin Crewell. Before we get on, here's a quick rundown of some of the stories we have in EE Times this week. Some of Intel's investors have been recommending that the company just get rid of its manufacturing operations already. Not only is that easier said than done, there are a ton of ways to screw that up. We have a suggestion that would, could, probably work. Big doings in the automotive electronics market. Regulatory agencies around the world are convinced that the most important safety feature in new cars has to be driver monitoring systems. We have several stories about why that is, which electronics companies are likely to benefit, and which appear to have bet wrong and might lose out. We've also got a preview of the International Solid State Circuits Conference. ISSCC is a premier conference for new revelations about fundamental electronics technology, including new device structures and new device types. Find those and other stories at www.eetimes.com. If you're on our podcast webpage, there are links on your left. No, your other left. Artificial intelligence is not just the next big thing. It's the next immensely huge, gigundous thing. AI is good at something that can't be done practically otherwise. It is good at sifting through extraordinarily enormous expanses of data relatively quickly to find patterns, often in real time or close enough to it. For example, AI has been used by network security companies to detect unusual patterns in network activity that might indicate possible cyber attacks. Recently, astronomers working with the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite used an AI to comb through 80 million records of instances where the light intensity of stars changed. They were looking for eclipsing binary stars single solar systems with at least two stars that would eclipse each other. They found several systems that each contained six stars, which, news to me, isn't all that common, but happens more often than I would have thought. But then they found something they say is truly unusual. A single system of six in which all the stars are paired, or as the researchers put it, a sextuply eclipsing sextuple star system. Anyway, AI. Everybody wants a piece of it. Established companies are focusing on it, and there are literally scores of startups, 
possibly hundreds, all specializing in AI chips, and they're all throwing around performance numbers that are hard to actually evaluate because they all seem to be measuring different things. How to make sense of it all? Jeff Tate, co-founder and CEO of FlexLogix, has been writing perspective pieces for EE Times on how to make sense of it all. We recently called him up to talk about it. So, Jeff, uh, one of the first things I'd like you to address is um, for the people who aren't familiar with AI, my understanding is that uh, the two broad categories um, are training and inference. Uh, Could I get you to explain the distinction between the two? Training is where somebody is developing a neural network model. They have an idea. They're trying to do something like detect and recognize objects. So they have to create that model. And uh, that's a complicated set of steps. And the output of that is a neural network model. So training is developing. Inference, you can think of it as like execution. So somebody's built a model, the model works. Now they need an engine that will run their model at the power and the cost and the speed combination that the developer is looking for. Are there, uh, subsequent to training versus inference, there are different uh, uh, approaches to AI, spiking neural networks, convolutional neural networks. Um, Is it important to understand what all the distinctions are there uh, for the developer? Um, Does it make a difference when you're figuring out what application you want to develop or what application you're uh, creating a system to uh, that you're going to apply your system to? It is going to be the case that some architectures may be better suited to some applications than others Mm -hmm. because there's such a wide range of applications and, uh, and price points, you know, from little, little doorbells on, on people's homes, to giant data centers. But I think most neural network people really don't care what's inside the accelerator. They just want it to run fast and be cheap and low power. And if it is those things, they don't really need to understand the internal guts. If they have to get into the details of the internal architecture, it probably means the software for that uh, solution isn't very good. Ah, so... uh you mentioned low power, but there's low power and there's low power. Your two examples a moment ago uh, were a doorbell and a data center. Um, I would imagine that uh, you'd want low power in the context of a data center and then low power in the context of a doorbell might mean two different things. Is that the case? Yeah. you. The way I'm seeing it now is uh, inference accelerators and chips Mm -hmm. will span a range similar to what you see with processors. There are super heavyweight Xeons for the data center. There are Xeons for clients like laptops. There's ARM-based chips in our phones. uh, And then there's very, very low-end things for stuff like watches and and stuff. Mm -hmm. So we're going to see the same range in inference chips. There are inference chips now that process in milliwatts. And there's others that are 300 watts. So Mm. they're really optimized for the application at hand. And no one chip's going to be able to handle the full range or even, you know, close to the full range. When you're choosing an inference chip, 
Um, what are the things you could, you should be looking for? Uh, obviously one factor is, as we were just discussing the, the power requirements, um, are there other specifications, um, that, that are pertinent when you're a designer and you're looking to get one of a, you know, a chip appropriate for your application? Well, if, if, if you are a customer and you have an application, and especially if you've already got a neural network model that works and that you like, uh, all you really need is to get the alternatives you're interested in to benchmark uh, the performance of your neural network on their chip and tell you how fast does it run in terms of inferences per second, is, is it batch mode equals one or batch equals large that you care about in your application? Like at the edge, it's almost always batch equals one because you're processing one image at a time, for example. And, uh, and what's the power dissipation and the cost? So what we see is that customers tend to come in and they know that in their situation, they can, they can handle a certain amount of power. They can, they can afford a certain amount of money and then they're looking for the most throughput that they can get for that power and for that money. So they got the two constraints and then they want to maximize throughput. And almost everybody that we see wants more throughput than what they can get today. Yeah. A moment ago, you, uh, you mentioned a word uh, that's, uh, that's been difficult for AI and that's benchmarking. Um, uh, I think a lot of uh, different companies make different types of claims about wildly different architectures that they have with their AI chips. And uh, it seems as if it has been um, a difficult uh, environment for engineers to figure out how to evaluate one chip versus the other. A moment ago, you were talking about, well, take your application and benchmark it on one of the chips that you're looking for, does the average engineer have the tools? And by tools, I mean the physical mechanical, you know, electromechanical systems and the expertise both to be able to figure out how to benchmark on different types of inference chips that they might be interested in using. Uh, I think that those tools are coming. Um, Products like ours are, are new and our compiler has not yet been released. But when we release it uh, later this year, customers will be able to take their neural network model, get the board from us, get the compiler from us, run it, run it on the board and see it working and see how fast it works and measure the power. And they'll be able to do the same with the alternatives that they're considering. And, and that's really the best way to go about doing it because Counterintuitively, the performance of a different model on two different chips isn't necessarily going to be predictive of the performance for your model. Well, let me give an example. Uh, we, we compete against NVIDIA's Xavier NX. Mm -hmm. So for YOLO V3, we run 1.3 times faster. Now I should uh, just stop you for a moment. Could I ask you to to explain for our listeners what YOLO is? Oh, yes. It is the high-end heavyweight object detection and recognition 
neural network model that's favored for people who need high accuracy. Like if you're driving a robot around a factory floor, you want to really make sure you don't hit anybody. So that's YOLO V3. So in one case, we run 1.3 times faster. For another customer's model, we run two times faster. For another customer's model, we run 11 times faster. So that shows you the range of variation uh, for three models between two chips. And I can tell you the benchmarks that you really shouldn't use, at least for our kinds of applications, is ResNet 50 and TOPS. Okay. So, so when you're saying our types of applications, are we again talking about object rep recognition and uh, you know vi uh, optical right. applications? Is that right? Yeah. Okay. The portion of the market that our customers are focused on uh, isn't the voice processing, which is lower end. Okay. It's not the data center like uh, uh, language processing or or recommendation uh, search optimization. It's taking images from a sensor that's capturing visible light or some other part of the electromagnetic spectrum and processing megapixel images. So when customers ask what our tops are, you know, what they're trying to do is to get an idea of the relative performance of our chip with their alternative. The problem with tops is tops just tells you how many multiplier accumulators the chips has. Now, if you don't have multiplier accumulators, you can't do the critical computation of a neural network because you, know, you need to do hundreds of billions of multiply accumulates. But if you have multiplier accumulators, but you don't have the right architecture and the right memory bandwidth, you won't be able to keep the multiplier accumulators fully utilized. For example, the Xavier NX has five times more tops than we do, but we outperform it by 1.3 to 11 times. So TOPS isn't a good indicator for comparing relative chips. And, and when we have a customer ask us how many TOPS, almost our, our pattern matching at this point tells us that customer is very early in their process of evaluating inference architectures and they don't have a neural network model yet because they would have figured it out already on their own if they'd run a couple of benchmarks. Right. So at this point, it's so, uh, so we know that the the AI um, the AI segment is still young and still developing, yes. um, and there's some expectation that uh, in early days um, you don't have um, an easy way to compare, and it's still incumbent on the customer to figure out the questions to ask. Yes, uh, and and it's the old, you don't know what you don't know. So right. the, the, the next step, the customers have figured out the TOPS isn't a good guide, move on next to ResNet 50. Because that's the most commonly quoted benchmark. And ResNet 50 is, is classifying images, still images, which were very small, 224 by 224 pixels, you know, the size of a postage stamp. And the problem with ResNet 50 in predicting architecture performance relative to architectures is that the images are so small, ResNet 50 doesn't stress the memory subsystem of the accelerator. Whereas when you process a two megapixel image, even with ResNet 50, 
all of a sudden the intermediate storage units you have to handle expand by 100x. So if you have a weak memory subsystem, it's not shown by the small images, but it is shown when you process the big images. So ResNet 50 is actually not bad if it was a megapixel image that they were using for the benchmark, but since it's a small image, it, it fails the memory stress test uh, component. So as you're well familiar with, the industry is trying to, to develop some uh, independent um, um, and objective benchmarking uh, to give potential customers some starting point for how they figure out to, to figure out where they want to go. Um, what I'm hearing is that um, you almost need to know about the benchmarks, find out what you don't know about the benchmarks and, and learn about the benchmarks to, to even be able to tell if they're really as objective as, as they'd like to be. Is that the case? Well, there are websites that show how different chips compare on ResNet 50. <laughs> it's, it's just that that may not be very helpful to a customer if their model is, is substantially different from ResNet 50. And that's not, you know, it's not intuitively obvious that that's the case. So I'm not saying that people, you know, aren't smart. Uh, it's just that they don't realize, you know, what, once you've once you've been doing what we've been doing for a couple of years, you start to realize how different parts of the architecture affect performance and how you can optimize the architecture for different categories of neural network models. Yeah, it's a it's a new endeavor, and uh, there's a learning curve, just like any new endeavor. Yes, right. Yes. Yeah. So what we would encourage people is think about what your model will be like and what public benchmark is most similar to your model for our category of customers who want high-performance megapixel images with high accuracy, the most relevant public benchmark is YOLO V3. I would like to move the conversation to um, what you can do with AI. Sure. Um, I know I, uh, I suspect you're not going to tell us exactly what your customers are intending, but perhaps you can talk about some of the types of uh, applications or the, the categories of applications, some of the new things we might see in factory automation, robotics, AR, whatever. This is my second startup. And my first startup was Rambus. We did high bandwidth memory. Mm -hmm. It was very successful. Uh, and I think what we're going to see is applications for AI that are completely unexpected, but high volume. And let me give an example. When we started Rambus, everybody thought our stuff was going to be for supercomputers and, and, and graphics workstations. I remember that. But our first high volume product was the Nintendo 63, a toy. In fact, it made me popular with my kids for the first and only time because we, we were able to <laughs> swing a deal to, uh, we had to give them a discount on the royalties. So we got Nintendo 63s for all of us first off the, off the rack. So, uh, I think we'll see AI as the price points for, for AI come down the learning curve. We're going to see it show up in products in much higher volume than it has to date uh, with very different applications than anything anybody has done so far. So we're just at the start of this market. It's exciting. That was Jeff Tate, CEO of FlexLogics. We've got links to some of the stories that Tate has written for us on the podcast episode webpage. The move to open systems in the electronics industry appears to be accelerating. 
The notion of open source began with software. The idea with open source software is that whoever wrote the code would offer it up for free or at a very low cost. It also came to mean there would be open participation in further development. Anyone can offer improvements, additions, extensions, and other evolutionary contributions. The first, most successful, and most famous of these is the operating system Linux. This sort of approach is a lot easier with software than it is with hardware, however. And yet, the benefits of open source software have been so attractive that people never stopped trying to develop open source hardware. Well, when it comes to hardware, there are open systems and then there are open systems. It started with network operators. Historically, network operators have had a choice of vendors for their equipment, but once they made a choice, they were pretty much stuck with that supplier forever. These suppliers all had closed systems, meaning that network equipment from vendor A would work only with other equipment from vendor A, and not with anything from vendors B or C. The converse was true too. Equipment from vendor B would work only with equipment from vendor B, and so on. Network operators hated being chained to a single vendor. That kind of thing is called vendor lock-in. These network operators wanted to be able to mix and match equipment, and they began to beat on their suppliers to make it happen. It took a long time, but ultimately, network equipment suppliers in the last decade or so started giving their customers what they wanted, open systems that could be mixed and matched. That began with the core networks, but in the past year or two, it has extended to the network edge, to the interface of the core network and cellular networks. This part of the network, that interface between the core and the cellular network, is called the Radio Access Network, or the RAN. There used to be vendor lock-in at the RAN, but in the last two years or so, there's been a huge acceleration in development work on what's called Open RAN, or ORAN. So when we start talking about open hardware technology, communications networks is where it started. But the things that were open in communication systems were mostly interfaces and software connections. Hard to do in practice, but conceptually it was simple. Open technology with the same or similar benefits of open source, but not technically open source. Developing hardware that is itself open source, well, that's a little harder. And yet, recently, an effort to develop an open source microprocessor system has been gaining steam. It's called RISC-V. This week, EE Times launched a special project on open systems. Our special projects are collections of related stories that explore a subject in depth. We've got stories that discuss Linux, Open RAN, and RISC-V. One of the stories on RISC-V was by Kevin Crewell, an analyst with Tyrius Research. He's a frequent contributor to EE Times, and we enjoy having him on as a guest here on this podcast. I asked him to start our conversation about open source technology by talking about how the open source dynamic began to develop with Linux. Linux did start off pretty much a hobbyist project, uh, one guy writing a little operating system uh, as a a, pro- uh, a project, and because he couldn't afford all the expensive stuff, and Unix was expensive, and so it 
it evolved basically on the idea that, hey, this is cool and you could do a lot with it. And a bunch of people got involved and kept contributing to it and making it better and better and better. And the fundamental um, dynamic of, of open source is that it's open to contributions from many people. They contribute to the project, they, re they add something, they return it to the project, and the, in aggregate, the project gets better over time. Uh, and then you can build a business based on that uh, as companies like Red Hat and SUSE and others have built actual businesses on supporting an open source free operating system. So uh, there is real businesses there and uh, many companies have supported Linux over the years, IBM, Intel, you know, all, all the, many of the chip guys, not all of them, uh, but they've uh, continued to support the growth of Linux. Um, and it's, you know, pretty much the dominant operating system for cloud providers right now. Was it obvious that um, the phenomenon of an open technology was transferable to hardware? Not really. A lot of people didn't believe that it would be open to the same collaborative uh, operation. And the early open source projects, um, I mean, the first things that were sort of open was open cores, which is a basically more a repository of uh, gateware, as they called it, which is basically mm -hmm. the, the, the gate implementation, RTL implementation of various projects. But most of those projects were academic projects that had no uh, future to it or or actually even dead, um, uh, you know, abandonware projects or I, I refer to it as leftoverware. Uh, and there was just no dynamicism to that. Uh, both IBM and Sun, especially Sun at first, uh, tried to open source uh, some of the Spark cores. And that mm -hmm. did get a little bit of traction. I mean, there were a number of people who used those those cores. Um, and probably one of the better known one is the uh, Leon CPU by the European Space Agency. Um, and mm -hmm. they also contributed back to the community. But Spark itself um, is pretty much a dead architecture because aside from Sun, uh, now, or now part of Oracle, and uh, Fujitsu, there was no broad development uh, ecosystem. Uh, IBM uh, a couple of times has tried to bring the power architecture to, to an open uh, place and open source it. And they've, they've come a long way, but once again, um, limited market acceptance. Partly it's too tied to IBM itself over the years and wasn't, the community couldn't really contribute to building new cores. IBM was donating cores to the project. Uh, more than mm -hmm. anything else. Uh, so again, it didn't have uh, the collaborative um, multi-vendor um, uh, dynamicism uh, that something like Linux has had. So uh, that points to uh, not a problem with the notion of applying uh, open approaches to hardware it sounds like it was an implementation issue, uh, you know, too much control by one company or uh, simply not enough value for to, to attract uh, a larger ecosystem. Yeah, uh, that, that's a good part of it. And also what you've seen with Linux, and I think this is uh, and then this leads us to uh, risk five 
is mm. that um, often these things are disruptive. They're they come from, they, they're disruptive technologies, and they come up from the low end and work their way up to higher performing systems. And that's where Risk V is as well. They start off as a open project that would uh, it's good right now. There's a whole bunch of microcontrollers and low end embedded processors using Risk V. But as that evolves, uh, it will become more and more robust systems with more capability. And uh, I think mm-hmm. that's where we're going with RISC V. And because RISC V is a very open collaborative project, uh, there's lots of input and a lot of dynamicism going on in that space. Uh, there are multiple companies offering proprietary cores as well as open, like, donating open source cores. So you have mm-hmm. this whole mix of free and you know unsupported, do your, you're on your own kid, build your own best CPU you ever wanted to ha- make, uh, or, hey, I want to be handheld, I want a customized core that does exactly this, and you can go to, you know, Andes, or you can go to uh, Sci-5, and they'll they'll give you that core, and they'll produce it for you and support it. So you have all the, you know, hand-holding of, of a proprietary core, but with the ability to extend it and own the future if you want to over time. So those are the benefits. Uh, yeah. uh, it's it's less expensive. It can it can it can be because uh, it does cost time if you want to do roll your own and and support it. It's not free if you go to Sci-Fi and say, "Hey, build me a custom core and and deliver it." So it's not free, right. but it's free if you want to do your own. But your how, how valuable is, is your, your time? time? Yeah, or your time to market, right? Yeah, and yeah, so that there's trade-offs. How much of it is uh, a desire to avoid vendor lock? Is any of it that? So, definitely some of it is. Uh, there's there's definitely uh, issues with vendor lock-in. Uh, but the converse of that is, um, you know, the, the warm embrace of a uh, company like Arm that has a, a huge ecosystem and support tools and you know, multiple cores they can license to you. It's a definitely a you know a warm embrace of that uh, of an ecosystem that's that can support you. Um, you know, you're a little bit uh, out on your own and and uh, with the uh, say RISC five, you're it's it's not quite the same warm embrace yet. You have multiple people vendor you know, vendors you can work with, but it's not not quite uh, as as comfortable an environment as you would if you're from a risk point of view, and that's a design risk and not with a, a K, not a C, uh, yeah. point of view. Yeah. So, uh, it sounds as if, um, we're at a point with risk five where, uh, Linux was early. Um, is it a matter of time before, uh, risk five builds that ecosystem? Um, are they is the community that's uh, developing and supporting the RISC-V environment um, doing it right? Uh, well, as right as you can. I mean, everything has, or has their own <laughs> opinion on what is right. Uh, that's part of the uh, open source movement is there are multiple right answers and, and people have to discuss which right answer they want to go with. Uh, and in some cases, they went with multiple right answers. Uh, and in the case of uh, Linux, it was an unproven technology, unproven uh, 
uh, development platform and, and, um, and uh, it was so it started so nascent, so small, and and uh, and, and it took a long time to develop uh, the, the robustness. And then, you know, companies like Red Hat and Suse and others uh, developed much more robust solutions over time. That 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 whole process took a long time. And it was entrenched Unixes, and and people were afraid to move their applications off their working platform. Right now, mm-hmm. with RIS five. Things are further along. They're moving faster. Uh, the team that developed the core uh, is not obscure. They are a well-known group of uh, academics out of University of Bar- uh, Berkeley, sorry, University of California, Berkeley, including David Patterson. Uh, Professor David Patterson is one of the founders of, of the whole risk uh, architecture concept, and so they're all well known. So they're they had a jump start on uh, on. Getting well known and getting their, uh, their their project off the ground, so they're moving much faster. The element of trust you you start off with a bit of trust, and that snowballs, right? Absolutely, and it's yeah. also people were anxious. There was there was um, a need for some more competition in the the instruction set um, arena. MIPS, which had been a, a, a stalwart in risk architecture, had begun to fade. It was tripping um, over some business issues and uh, got eventually bought by a Wave Computer and Wave Computers and uh, receivership. And so there's lots of uh, problems with you know keeping a, a, a viable community on MIPS. ARM uh, was bought by SoftBank, went private. Uh, and now it's being, you know, is being sold off to Nvidia, so there's still concern about what does that mean for the future of ARM, and 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 also many of mm-hmm. ARM licensees are Nvidia competitors, so they have to feel they may not feel completely comfortable with the ARM architecture being owned by one of their uh, uh, harshest rivals. Um, mm-hmm. So there's a, a gr- great opportunity now. Uh, and, and also, uh, let's talk about XA6, completely proprietary, you know, not even a licensable version. There are versions of the XA6 architecture that are expired patent-wise, so you could build something, but it would be, you know, tw- you know a 20-year-old architecture. Um, so there was just a need for something new, more modern, uh, and the fact that it's open source or open architecture, it's not really open source, our open architecture, was, I think, an either uh, another benefit to having the a, a, a new architecture uh, with RISC-V. Yeah. Um, I think um, for, from a journalism standpoint, um, uh, we often get caught up in uh, the, com- the competition, mm-hmm. the horse race. Um, but uh, this isn't one of those situations where there's going to be one winner. Um, there are good reasons to go to Intel for the x86, good reasons to go to ARM for its cores, good reasons to go to risk five, and you got to balance the trade-offs, yeah? Uh, yes, and there are there are instruction sets, which was say are a means to an end. You, you want to do pro- mm-hmm. you want to process something, you want to control something, you want to build something. Uh, if you want something that runs x86 software, you have Intel's manufacturing muscle, 
uh, you go x86. If you want a license architecture that's well supported today, um, that scales pretty well, scales really well, uh, you can license ARM and, and you can build your own ARM server processor like uh, Amazon AWS did with Gravitons. But if you want something new that's a little bit that's fresher, that gives you more flexibility to extend, add customized instructions, um, and also is in the early phases of a, of a up ramp, uh, so it's got a future to it. Uh, that looks pretty bright so far. Um, RISC V is a real good alternative. Uh, and if you're, you know, right now RISC V, I don't think has this definitely does not have the ecosystem uh, of an ARM, but it's getting better. And they can and the people who are doing ARMs uh, uh, support will eventually, I think also support RISC-V over time. And I, you'll see uh, more and more uh, competition there. But just like um, MIPS hasn't really gone away, there's still MIPS around. Um, ARM will never really go away. I think ARM is still in a very great in a great position today for a lot of applications. And if, obviously, if you want to build a smartphone, ARM's the only way to go. You can't, there's no Android for anything but ARM. Uh, so there's definitely uh, a long... Um, support window for ARM and but risk having risk five here gives give people an option it's, it's another clear option and uh, it's a very uh, appealing option to some people to some companies and uh, if you're doing something deeply embedded you don't need to necessarily license a Cortex-M you can you can do it with a risk five core anything I haven't asked about that's pertinent uh, one other thing uh, that has come up and that's the geopolitics of of chips and processors and instru mm. instruction sets. Uh, there are been questions whether uh, the ARM architecture could be licensed. Uh, and I think the uh, previous administration had tried to stop licensing to uh, Chinese companies like Huawei. And uh, there's still some very um, interesting issues there. I think that's still something of concern. I think it's also one reason why China itself has been very interested in alternative architectures. Um, x86 is, is a proprietary architecture, uh, and only Intel and AMD, and to a lesser extent, um, Centaur uh, can manufacture x86 processors, and uh, they're subject to trade restrictions, uh, which could impact uh, China. And China in the past has looked at MIPS as an alternative architecture, has looked at power as an alternative architecture, um, and to some extent ARM, because there is a um, the uh, ARM uh, limited liability company uh, subsidiary in China is independent. Uh, so there's ability to transfer IP into that Chinese entity, and then they license it to the other, other companies in China. But there's always still geopolitical issues. That was Kevin Crewell. Our special project on open source technology is now live. If you're on the page on our website dedicated to this podcast, you'll find links right there on the upper left. Otherwise, surf on over to eetimes.com and you'll find the main article on our homepage, also entirely coincidentally in the upper left-hand corner. And that wraps it for the weekly briefing for the week ending February 5th. Thank you for listening. The weekly briefing is available on all the major podcast platforms, but if you get to us via our website at www.eetimes.com, 
eetimes.com slash podcasts, you'll find a transcript along with links to the stories we mentioned. This podcast is produced by EE Times. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McRae at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week. But there's always still geopolitical issues. One thing with RIS-5 is that it is based in Geneva, Switzerland, which right there telegraphs we're in we're we're neutral <laughs> um it's it stinks of neutrality <laughs> i don't know is that is there a neutral 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 uh, uh odor that you would apply to that anyway I, so i like to tell yeah it stinks of neutrality i like that's funny um but it, certainly it has a very neutral stance and because it's an open instruction set anybody can develop ip based on it